I'll give you an example. Like I was doing some oscillating movements with one of my fighters and his, his pad holder, the guy that holds his pads, messaged me and said, what have you been doing? Like literally he's bruised my leg through the pads. His, his leg kicks are so hard. Do you know what I mean? That was Graham Morris. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights that they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power. And it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10 meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body and ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems fine-tuning it. And that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. There is so much to talk about when it comes to strength and conditioning. We have this interdisciplinary field with all sorts of means and methods that we can use to train athletes. And a question I get a lot is how I end up integrating a lot of these, uh, the information from the various guests on the show into a training program. I really like talking with other coaches to see what they do with the information that they've gained from the various experts that are in their network. And at the end of the day, seeing that art of how the information is taken and balanced and practically applied to your population is always fun to chat about. Graham Morris uh, is our guest today. Graham is a performance coach that consults for a variety of field and combat-based athletes, including uh, world and Australian champions. He's also the head strength coach for the AFL umpires. He has previously worked in rugby league for six seasons. Graham, uh, as I talked about, the the integration of information. Graham has experienced learning from many leading coaches. He has spent lots of time traveling and learning and has a huge library of knowledge from a variety of coaching sources. And on the show today, Graham is going to take us into his own integration, uh, specifically of two of the most common interests of many performance coaches, which is one, game speed, building specific speed in athletes, and two, his approach to strength and power development. Within these topics, more specifically, he'll talk on his use of uh, closed versus open agility, lateral speed concepts, linear speed, robust running, and then uh, many methods in the weight room highlighting uh, oscillatory isometrics and how he's taken some of Kaldita's methods to get great results in terms of power outputs for his own athletes. 
Graham has such a practical as well as balanced style to how he implements training. Uh, this was a really fun show. Let's get on to it. Episode 262 with Coach Graham Morris. Graham, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Could we just start quickly by you sharing with us a few of your uh, main influences when it comes to how you do uh, sports performance uh, and yeah. training your athletes? Hey, Joel, thanks for having me. Always watch, read, um, listen to this podcast. It's one of my favorites. In terms of my influences, I probably would say a major influence would be my good buddy, uh, Gear Wenham Flat. We always throw back and forth ideas. We have uh, similar philosophies and principles, I guess, towards training. In terms of one of my current bosses at the moment, I got uh, uh, it's called Robert Jackson. I work for him at the AFL. He's really kind of teaching me how to organize, be a bit more diligent, communicate a little bit better on that side of thing. And then in terms of like training and that, I probably go through a, a broad spectrum of different influences. The Soviet stuff, like the Verkashansky and the Bondarchuk for the transfer. Then in terms of the strength stuff, I'd say probably Carl Dietz, um, I really like. And then I got it some, I guess, for the track and field stuff with Bialtis, Sprinkle of Bosch, we'll go into later. Um, and then I got, I got some close friends who I, like, I always get to chat to, like um, Jeff Moyer, Jake Jensen, Chapter Gordango, guys like that, Jay DeMario. I just got some guys in, like, you know, throw some ideas around. Yeah, so that's probably, that's probably where it is to start with. Yeah, so I'm excited to get into all this stuff, um, the speed and strength and everything that you're doing. So we'll start out with the the speed since that typically comes first in the training session so often. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then yeah. uh, just to talk on your frame of a, such a common question, I've had this on the show before, but the, the idea of closed versus open agility. So yeah. doing closed drills versus opening things up and especially in context, in context of the yeah. athlete population you work with. Tell me a little bit yeah. about what you're doing there. Yeah. So when I was working in team sports, the, the thing is, it's such a long competitive season. You're looking from March to September, and then you've probably got a preseason of three months. And so that's a large part. There's not much of an off season. So in this preseason period, you really only have a small window to stimulate speed, change of direction, agility, and all these things. And essentially, it's just a, a you know, a small dose in each warm-up. You get a small amount of time to warm guys up and you might only have 10 or 15 minutes to try and fit all of this in. And then they're going into their, their specific drills, their technical tactical drills and their, their small started games, et cetera, whatever they have planned on to start with. So in terms of the, the change of direction and the, um, the open, um, I guess, agility drills, obviously early in the preseason, in a layout, I might have a max velocity day. I might have a um, uh, acceleration day. And I, depending if I have three on, on feet sessions or four, you might have one to two with a change of direction influence or an agility influence. So I always like to go from a closed scenario to an open scenario order to chaos. And initially we're working on these, these change of direction mechanics because I know everyone's talking about solving these movement problems and everything like that, but, if an athlete doesn't have multiple tools to begin with, it's hard for them to select the right tool in this scenario. So, you know, I've, I've worked with primarily rugby league, and what I found was a lot of guys weren't really efficient in a lot of these different movements. So I look at things like shuffle positions, um, crossover step, just basic deceleration mechanics, backpedaling, 
they were starting in a close scenario, sometimes even um, resisted to slow it down even more. You're building on this each week. It's becoming a little bit more complex. So you might go from closed, you might start becoming a bit more reactive and building these things together, and then they'll start becoming a bit more open. So to give you an example, let's just say we had basic shuffle position. Early, early preseason, we might just do just a basic shuffle. Then you might do a double shuffle. Then you might do a double shuffle and return. From there, we might, a few weeks of that, we might put players in like a mirror drill where they're kind of reacting to like a cat and mouse type game. So we're, like, we're putting layers of complexity on it. And then we might put athletes into these positions where they can, might do one-on-one and have to get play, past the player. Then we can add more complexity to this too. We're kind of just bleeding on this. And then I guess then we're trying to put these guys into game-like scenarios where it's going to happen automatically when they, they kind of have these tools. So try and teach them the tools to begin with and then you know, give them the ability to perceive what's happening in front of them so they can kind of solve these, these um, different problems that are in front of them. And then hopefully that transfers into a game-like scenario. Just quickly, just because this is the question I always do ask. I know that Jay, like Jay DeMaio answered this back when it was a him and Jeff and Michael Zwiefel, but like the idea of, of what are you getting or seeking in the close, especially with the change of direction. I think that it's pretty easy when we talk about acceleration and upright running. There's a lot of markers that a lot of people are looking for with athletes. In terms of change of direction, like you said, shuffling and crossover steps, what are the things that athletes might have a hard time with? Like, what's that well, thing that you are like, hey, like, let's try to clean this up for when we get into the chaotic? Yeah, I think for me, that it's not balanced to begin with. So you want, you know, find an athletic position so they have the ability to produce force in and out of these positions and be balanced. So a lot of guys, yeah, just don't know where to put their feet to begin with. That's what I found and keeping their feet underneath them. And then just, I guess, orientating the body and being able to relax at the right time and not being stiff and just teaching those movements to begin with in a, in a closed setting, I think can really help players understand that. Gotcha. And so like the, the shuffles, so you said you're like doing resisted shuffles too? Like- yeah, to, be, to begin with, you can just do some band resisted, have a big um, a player hold a band. I learned that from Kier actually hmm. many years ago, slow it down and, and you know, you want your, the players with the the feet underneath the hips, driving the ground away from them, but you don't want to drive too far because you have to be able to come back the other way and things like that, just stay, so they stay in balance. But, yeah, that's just slowing it down. You take away the band, and then all of a sudden you're speeding it up, and then you're adding complexity on top of that. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes sense to me. I feel like for me personally, like if I was – and I actually am not in a situation where I'm really training athletes through a whole year mm-hmm. where we're having that yeah. phase of close, so this is where I – I like asking questions, but I feel like if I were to do that, I would want to treat it like heavy sleds, like using a stimulus that exists outside of what the players are already used to. And at least forcing the way a heavy sled forces better shin angles, I would imagine. And I watch athletes do that as well. Um, I've been in the gym that I work at. I see that too. Like when athletes have a resistance, most of them will choose a better shin angle. Some of them still don't. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I think, that's interesting. I think it's also important that when we see on social media, you always see the best athletes doing these positions. You've got to take into account the lower um, level athletes that don't have the ability to do this as well, because um, mm-hmm. you're trying to get the whole team more athletic as well. If that makes sense, because it's always great to see what people do online, but they're picking their their, their number one talented athlete. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No one's putting no one's putting up the, uh, the the least talented ones. Because they just want, want themselves to look good. 
That should Sorry. be a rule for a week is you have to put all the athletes who are at the bottom on all your drills, <laughs> everything you're doing. You have to yeah. pick the ones who are struggling <laughs> and then show only them. <laughs> How much yeah. I think we would, I mean, we would all, I think that world would be so much better of sports performance because <laughs> you're going to see the people. It, it's really, it really is. I feel like so much in sports performances, it's not about the 10% is actually the least, I feel like marker yeah. of a good coach. Cause those athletes are going to figure it out themselves. Anyway, they have, they run on a different level. It's, it's almost more those people who are trying to, you know, they're trying to stay robust. They're trying to not get yeah. hurt. They're trying to, they have some movement issues that need to get ironed out and the way they move could get better. Yeah. Like those are the ones that and take it, the, I think the more expertise. And I think Rodango actually said it to me once when I visited his facility, I'm actually wearing a shirt right now. Um, <laughs> freak strength. But um, he was, I think he said to me, yeah, like for him change of direction stuff is just strength work mm-hmm. in, in through frontal plane, you know, for different planes of motion. You know, you've got a large eccentric load and you're producing force out of it. So, yeah. So, yes, it definitely can get players more robust, you know, and resilient in these, these areas that are really important in sport. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of, um, I guess, the linear speed stuff, early pre-seasons, I'm, I'm trying to work towards, a, I guess we say, a biomechanical model where, you know, I'm looking at common denominators and I kind of stole that word from uh, Dan Path and, um, you know, Jonas Dodo talks about attractors are kind of like the ones he talks about of switching, um, I think he says projection and, and reactivity. Mm-hmm. So I might have a max velocity day and initially we might be doing build-ups because we're trying to sometimes early preseason athletes have done nothing. So you've got to be really careful how you expose them to um, high-intensity sprinting. So you might just do build-ups to begin with. These might um, – I quite like wicket drills because in a team sport scenario, it's very, very hard to try and coach multiple different athletes at once. So if I can put constraints on these athletes and put them in better positions with that coaching, it's easier for me. And especially when I'm not just a pure track and field coach, I'm, I'm more of a generalist. And then, you know, from, from the build-ups, we might go into fly sprints. Into fly sprints, we might go into um, floating sprints down the line. And then the same thing on my acceleration day, we might be doing resistance sprints to start with. And then we're going from short to long on that day. And then as we, we're trying to, hit this biomechanical model, whether or not it transfers into game-like scenarios, I'm not sure. And then when players probably reach these, where I'm trying to get them to, then I might sprinkle in some of these robust running methods that's, you know, a bit of a buzzword at the time. But, you know, we can start playing around with, like, taking away some stability by maybe putting your hands across your shoulders to begin with and layering complexity on that way because – you probably want your players to be able to run under pressure and the perturbations on the, in the field. But I find a lot of people skip that initial step and just go to that sometimes a bit early. And it's like, I think it's important that we nail the basics first before we go straight into that. Yeah. I think that's quite important. And then as, as, as I progress those type of, um, move, a lot, I think you can get a lot of that, those movements just in your warm up with your switching drills and everything like that, because People say that like those um, basic drills don't always transfer, but I think with a lot of team sport athletes that don't understand the movements, if you can slow them down in, in this initial warm-up prep, that it does transfer to a degree. So then you can play around the, the robust running, running methods within your warm-up, but I think it's really, really important that you don't lose sight that in game-like scenarios, a lot of the time players are even in training, they're not exposed to maximal velocity. So I think that's really, really important that we tick off that, that attribute because we know that that's really, really um, important to try and limit hamstring strains, which is one of the number one injuries that occur in team sports. 
So I think if we can get a chronic load of high-speed running in throughout a preseason in an intelligent way, that's really, really important. So, yeah, I might sprinkle in a few of these methods when I think my athletes are able to do it, but I'm always trying to expose them to speed. And then we're going into our, our drills, and that's when I think people are talking about game speed at the moment. For me, I think you can get a lot of these, these game speed um, in your technical, tactical drills. Because, I mean, for me, game speed is the ability to, I guess, be quick in and out of a variety of different positions, which you can kind of plug that in at the end. Of, once these guys hit all these different elements, you might want to sprinting guys off like different scenarios, you know, out of curves, out of arcs and things like that. And a lot of team sports scenarios, you're going to find that um, when they're accelerating, it's a little bit different to track and field because they're already in an upright posture because they have to be looking up the ball, get gazing and everything like that. I think um, Hakan Anderson actually said um, it means there's a lot more um, hip extensors, a lot more influence. The hip extensors are doing a lot more work in that scenario when you have to accelerate from the upright position. So you can play around that type of stuff. But in terms of the game speed stuff, and which is another thing that everyone's talking about right now, for me, it kind of comes back to, and this is a thing I stole from Fergus Connolly, but like not only do you want your players to be quick, you want them to be quick above the shoulders. And for, in a team sport scenario, there's, there's only four real things that are occurring in a game. There's attack, there's defense, there's transition to attack, and there's transition to defense. And in defense, we're trying to take away space from the opposition. And then in attack, we're trying to create space. And, you know, when you create space, that gives your athletes the ability to actually be quick. They can actually use that speed now. But to create that space, you, you know, you need to have intelligent players. And this is where they need to understand the game plan, which is really, really important. That you probably, that's more of a head coaching type role that all the players understand the game plan. They understand what they should be executing, where they should be on the field, where the ball should be circulating, where they should be circulating, what's the correct sequencing to create this space. And then when they have that space, they now have the ability to hopefully use that speed. Because you always, you'll probably know, Joel, like you see these guys and you know they're not quick, but they always seem to have time on the field. And for me, that's, a lot of that's kind of game speed. It's like making the right decisions at the right times, being in the correct position. And then if we can kind of get these two things together, I think that's where the magic happens. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take that back a little bit to, so you're yeah. talking first about the, like just the regular linear speed, and then we'll get into some of the, the game speed stuff. And I really like the idea of the space and how that almost allow, facilitates you to express your speed. Cause if you never have space, yeah. how are you ever going to express the speed that you built? But I just like how what you're saying, it just resonates with what a lot of other coaches have said in team sport physical prep is you have to get some sort of max velocity exposure. Yes. And are you, so along with like the wickets, and I like the one thing that stands out to me too with team sport is the ability to do switching. Like for track athletes, that's pretty standard, but I think in team sport, mm. it's so less common that they can do, uh, or Darren Barr calls it remove, replace, like to remove the foot that's on the yeah. ground before the leg that's in there starts coming down. So many people just bring the leg down kind of passively. And I think that yeah. that core ability is not there so oftentimes in team sport oh, mate, athletes. It, it can be a train wreck at the start, honestly. Like you show some um, players have never been exposed to any of this type of stuff. And um, they find it really, really difficult. And I still, I think a lot of the boom exercises from Chris Corfist. Yeah. I kind of layer it on that. You know, your single booms, your triple booms, 
you know, your boom booms. I know you got some boom boom videos you used to do back in the day on on, on YouTube. I stole a few of those as well. And um, I think that switching ability is really, really important. I like the primetime jewels. I think they're great as well. Yeah. And just just putting these into your warm-ups, you know, every single session. And, you know, pl- players will pick up this, and I think that can transfer over onto the field. Yeah, I almost look at those two drills. I mean, like the running drills, and I like the wickets too. And I almost like in, I almost feel like there's got to be some similarities. I I would um, use a lot of wickets when I would work with club track ages, basically looking at ages like nine to twelve or nine to fourteen. Now you got a mess of kids, and it's like half of them aren't paying attention. And in some ways, maybe that is sometimes uh, some some teams on the higher level. But you have to find a way to to let them go through without. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't coach everyone. And sometimes I think it's not good to coach everyone. And so I was getting to the point where I would have them be running through like, you know, and I know Tony Haller's got a million like rhythm drills that are really cool. And I, I one of the favorite ones I had was just run through with one arm for those kids, like just run through yeah. with one arm or just simple stuff like that. And then run off it, bring in both and run off of it and stuff like that. Mm. And that was, it made it a lot easier for those groups. Yeah. I mean, some athletes really, really struggle at the start to even they start bounding from. So mm-hmm. I even removed, made it simpler, and just did um, cones to start with, like week one. Just do cones so yeah. guys feel comfortable running over it. And then I might put a couple of mini, um, mini hurdles at the end, and then each week I add a couple more mini hurdles. And when, when they become efficient at that, okay, guys, now you're running through with your hands across your shoulders. Okay, now we're going to run through with your football on one side, and you're, you're going through one side on this side. Um, through half of it this way, and we're switching across. Then we might switch across side to side and make it more complex as we go through. That can be quite powerful, I think. Yeah, to me, as you said, the theme of those to me is is connectivity. And I think what I was getting with the arms, well, like the one arm, especially for those younger athletes, is with younger athletes, usually the thing that they're, they haven't developed yet, that they are in process, mm-hmm. is really connecting the arms to the legs in like a arm straightening as it comes down towards the bottom type manner. A lot of them are more rotational and they just haven't i don't don't call it core strength i just because i've given people like uh, david wex pulsers before and instantly they're they get connected like it's like this little shaker in them helps them to connect their arms to their legs better so clearly they have the core strength so but i think even with like not you having your arms you have a greater awareness of what your spine and all those little spinal muscles that connect are doing having a ball and rotating you have to have an awareness of how that's connecting down into the bottom and i think I just don't like with the wickets. I think that, yeah, like you said, people bounding over or it just becomes about airtime. Well, it's like when you're a team sport, like you're on the ground, like you, it probably is not advantageous to be like flying and bounding over these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I do think about how Joel Reinhardt talked about like a good soccer players do have the ability to get out of just pure low heel recovery mode and get up into a more track esque and then go back down into the like an yeah. elite player he referenced. So I think that would be the dream to have different strategies yeah. of running, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, they're getting so much of the, that type of stuff, like specific game, like stuff in their training. Anyway, exposing them to these upper types of, of drills is, is if anything, can build some coordination and, and just teach guys awareness of their body, some relaxation, a bit of coordination and reduce a bit of stiffness, a bit of fluidity, things like this, which typically in like, a, a, you know, probably five, 10 years ago, we weren't really talking about this term so much. And I think they're starting to become a little bit more um, important these days. Yeah. People are starting to understand, hey, we need to have good, efficient movements on the, on the field. Only, not only 
wanting them to be able to move well and fast in a variety of directions, if they can do that, they're probably less likely to be injured. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365 day money back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah, I saw, um, I remember about three years ago, it's like a global hamstring seminar. This is in, uh, in California that hosted by Paul Cater, who's been on the show. And there was a coach from Spain who I don't think he has like a social media. It's just like he's just an in the trenches coach working with soccer players in Spain in the, the big the big clubs there. And it was a thing where like they would do drills on one side of the field and then kind of get tired. And then they would run across the field over like little low wickets, like just to mm-hmm. to experience being tired and doing a like a more of soccer esque, you know, low heel recovery type movements and then experience as you're under fatigue. Now you have to run across the field with a little bit more lift to your strategy yeah. and change strategies. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's genius. That's so awesome. Mm. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. I, all right. So I want to get to uh, just a couple other things. One is. And you mentioned with the the space, I, I've never thought about it that way until you just mm. said it there. But the idea that you have to create space basically to use your speed, like, and it's like yeah. it's almost like the game speed or what you said between the ears, and your physical abilities kind of have to rise in tandem. I think for you to really be effective, because if your physical speed and gifts is rising, but you don't know how to manage space, like, how are you ever going to use it except for that one freak like bre- breakaway play? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, well, you, you see it all the time. You see when an athlete gets transferred to a better team and all of a sudden they like Indian rugby kind of thing, they might've had five tries one season and the following season they had 15 tries. It's like, well, it's because they've got space now, mm-hmm. you know, you know what I mean? They had the ability to express their speed and be out in the open. And I mean, a lot of that is tied down to, you know, I haven't put done and put a lot of this into, into place, but a lot of this is down to this tactical periodization type scheme that, you know, everyone's starting to throw around now. But I think Fergus Connolly's works really, really good like that. And if you can start um, bucketing your exercises, the drills, it's kind of you need a holistic approach with your head coach and you start bucketing drills. Hey, today we're going to be working on maybe capacity. So we're going to have these drills that are going to be a bit more open. This other day we're going to have drills that are going to be, we're going to be working more speed. And it's important when we talk about, I think what happens in a lot of um, team training is that people just build more and more. But rather than that, all we're getting is a watered down effect. So uh, we need to have these drills and then be executed at game speeds or above rather than just slowing everything down. That's, that's, the, that's the way to train. It's probably how you're going to play. So we need to have these, these drills that are really quick. Everyone's on the same page. They understand the game plan. They understand where they need to be. When they have this ability to do this, they're going to be able to express speed on the field. But, yeah, you can, you can change drills 
And there's no real set rule, I don't think. I think it's just like sitting down and working out, hey, these drills fit into this scenario, these drills fit into this scenario. And that's probably a good for an injury prevention method anyway because, you know, one day we might be walk, working in more of a short type um, space. That's going to put a lot more um, more stress on the groin area, your glute area, your calf area, because you're changing directions quite a bit. It's going to be potentially more anaerobic because of a lot of change of directions. Whereas the other day is going to be more open. You're probably going to hit some higher speeds. It's probably going to be a little more stressful in the hamstrings. It might even be more aerobic because there's going to be a lot more space. And then you can kind of layer that so that when one muscle group's, you know, recovering the other day, you know what I mean? So you can have this high, low type thing like that and playing around with that. Yeah. That gets quite complex going into this. Yeah. Well, I like, I, I like, I like actually, I was just taking away or just thinking of it in the sense of like muscle groups, like, like shorter space works the calves and feet more. And it's funny because I, mm. it makes, it actually, it makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea too of, and I just, I'm just thinking of it for just a general perspective. Like I, I take that to my own experience as a track and field high jumper. And I felt like when I stopped playing team sports and, and this isn't just me, this is a lot of track athletes, like jump athletes, especially mm-hmm. when they stop playing like basketball or something, they kind of, and they only do track, uh, they kind of, they oftentimes lose something. And mm-hmm. I'm always thinking of what they're losing. And I do think so much of that is they lose Josh uh, Waitzkin, I'm reading his book, The Art of Learning, and he calls it drawing smaller circles. Like basically you're getting tighter and faster, tighter and faster, tighter and faster as you go through the process. But I just think in those little sports, there's so many little quick jabs and cuts and movements that, you know, like heel tapping, even just the heels just kind of go, you know, and those little quick movements. Uh, yeah, I saw you playing around with that the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and it's amazing too. And you get that rhythm, right? That's that rhythm of those heel taps and that how that mm. leads into a jump. It's more than what we think about. That's why I think when we play basketball or pick up basketball, even I've played racquetball and set, I set my all time vertical jump record standing after a game, a couple of games of racquetball, <laughs> yeah. just because it, it's just so short and it tunes up. But I, I, I hadn't heard how you said, okay, we're going to work short. This should stress this muscle group more. And that'd be interesting too, to think, well, maybe, well, let's, let's fill the bucket you didn't get in the weight room later. You know, like if you just were doing all the short space stuff, maybe you're, your quads and your yeah. groin and glutes are kind of cashed out. So why are we going to go, you know, let's maybe train a little more hamstrings in the way. I don't know, you know, like something like that yeah. could be mindful to, to also know yeah, where an athlete's stress was. Yeah. Well, you might, you might say, Hey, we're just going to add even more onto that, but then let them recover the next couple of days. Yeah. Well, it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? So you might have like, you might have the short high speed day type thing. And then the following day, you might have more of an open area type thing, but we're going to slow it down a little bit more because then we're going to get a little bit more aerobic. And you have a day off and then we can repeat this again. So we're having this undulating of speed and, and stress throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. With the game speed stuff, so the stuff between the ears though, and that, just like to draw some context or just like how, how will this fits with where the athletes you work with, like higher level, pro, semi-pro, like athletes who are at a high level. For game speed, I mean, that's just mostly the coaches. Like that's, that's yeah. I mean, where, to, where do you fit into all that and how do you see... Uh, like maybe working with lower level players or you know school yeah. players, how do you see that fitting well, in? In terms of the higher level, I think that's where you have to have a good relationship with the coach because you can start talking about, hey, you know these drills are only being performed at this type of speed. We need to up the speed of this, so you can have those conversations and things like that. In regards to like the younger players and things like that, well, I, I really think that we need to get expose these athletes at younger ages to more more speed stuff related stuff. 
I mean, in, in Australia anyway, there's not really a massive culture of track and field. You know, everyone's playing a lot of Australian rules football, maybe soccer, rugby, rugby union, rugby league. So, you know, I think if we can expose these athletes to some sprinting a bit earlier, that would be a big benefit for a lot of them, especially at a younger age. I think Stefan Jones always talks about how the, the ages you've got to, I'm not sure what it was, but, you know, you want to expose these athletes at a young age to all these type of things, especially when they're a bit more plastic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the dream, isn't it? Get these, these kids through. So, someone was telling me once, like, you know, all the best coaches are at the, the elite, you know, and you have a lot of upcoming strength coaches or um, strength and conditioning coaches at the bottom, but in some, in some aspect, we should probably flip it. Have <laughs> 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 had all these the high-level coaches with the younger kids yeah. and, and the opposite way around because they need the more work done at the start and you're going to have these super uh, athletes at the end. Yeah, yeah. I, that's completely true. I mean, if there's, I know here in the United States, there is an abs, immense need for good coaches with young athletes because it just, there's so much just like things that young athletes are doing that they shouldn't be. And there's, there is, there's yeah. not enough quality speed. I mean, honestly, if it comes, like you said, if it, if it comes down to a, like a young athlete doing track season or lifting weights, do track season. Why would you know, like that is that if people just saw that at the higher levels, it's not the, the grinding lifting that's going to make the difference. It's speed. I think that they would understand that earlier on and athletes enjoy that more. I think, well, not all, I think a lot of athletes enjoy hey, lifting, but you know, and it, do, it doesn't take that long to develop this, the, the strength that you're after. Yeah. Really. But developing speed at a young age, I think is going to have some greater benefits on your athletic performance down the line. Not only that, just being the ability to move or in all these multi directions is really important. And it's funny you say that, Joel. So I reckon working with younger athletes is a big business opportunity for a lot of coaches because parents want to see their kids be gun athletes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of parents live through their kids and are like, oh, that's my kid. Look how good he is. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of parents out there probably willing to uh, pay a lot of money towards their kids and trying to, to develop them at these younger ages. So hopefully, you know, down the line, we're going to see a lot. I think we're starting to see it now, to be honest. It's starting to, to pick up. You're starting to see a lot more of these um, private facilities pop up now. I know that's happening in Australia anyway. We've got some good private facilities starting to pop up and starting to introduce a lot of these concepts to younger athletes now. And I think that's quite exciting. Yeah, it is good. It also is a double-edged sword in the sense of, you know, there's also the overserved athlete too. I mean, that's a whole different discussion, yeah. but the athlete yeah. who has every coach yeah. for everything. And, you know, like mm-hmm. Stefan talks a lot about too, like the natural athlete, like if we all just yeah. played in this, you know, it played in the street or like just did different sports and just kind of like yeah. did all these things and did, you know, track or gymnastics yeah. and swimming, we wouldn't need these and, facilities um, <laughs> for a too large Yeah. Extent. And I think that's, you know, we don't want to create robots. You got to let them play. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the time that, just put them in these positions like playing games and they'll probably find these positions anyway. But it's a lot different now to when probably when we were kids, when I, I grew up on a farm and I was, I was shooting hoops before school, I was doing all sorts, you know, every day my, I was either working on a farm or I was playing sport and that's what we did. Yeah. And now kids don't do that, mate. That's the original um, training right there. What you did <laughs> farm and sports. Yeah. 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 Farm and sports. That was my, that was my life, mate, when I was a kid and kids aren't doing that now, mate, you know? So I guess, and a lot of parents just want, don't want their kids to go outside and do all these things. So, you know, maybe this, we have to bridge that gap somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So quickly, before we transition more to the, the weightlifting type stuff, and maybe this is a good bridge, yeah. is, well, first, I know there was a, an anecdote of where, you know, the cure went flat, talks about not going full Bosch. Uh, oh, yeah. Apparently that came yeah. from you. And I'm actually curious to that, how that came about. And then just talk about how 
how do you approach some of that? Like just trying to get more coordinative in the weight room, like coordination yeah. versus general and some of those exercises. So tell me the story yeah. first and then we can get into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was back in the CBAS about three, four years ago. And, um, Jay DeMeo's, uh, Jay DeMeo's seminar. And I was, he always, at the end of the uh, talks, he always has all his kegs of great beer and stuff like that. And um, it's always this stronger IPA stuff. And I probably had a few in me, to be honest. <laughs> and, I was, and I was talking, I always looked up to Chris Corfus, like, like it, I always loved reading his drills. I remember I used to pester him all the time and he used to talk back to me. So when I got to meet him after we had this conversation, I did his lecture. I was like, really, was, I really enjoyed it. But I actually said to him, never go full Bosch. And then obviously, <laughs> obviously Jeff and Jeff Moyer was there and Keir was there and they, they found it hysterical. And, and the, the, the only reason I said that is because I actually like some of Fran's concepts and that. But for me, when I was working in a lot of like, I guess, rugby league space, and I was, what I was seeing in a lot of these, um, these contact type sports, all of a sudden I was seeing all over social media, everyone playing around with these coordination exercises within the gym. And, for me, in, in a sport, don't get me wrong, I know my athletes need to be coordinated, coordinated and they need to move, but they have to run through brick walls. They need to be robust. There's a lot of contact. It's just, if you look, watch the sport, it's just a huge amount of collisions. And I said it tongue-in-cheek because the thing with, okay, this is probably my take, the thing is in the weight room, on the field you've got so much specificity. And then in the weight room, you know, you have – it's a time for the athletes to get some general strength. And you have all these tried and tested methods that we know that are out there, just basic strength training, okay? You've got, you got plyometrics, you've got medicine ball training, you've got ballistics, we've got jumps, the load lifting derivatives. And we know that, you know, in certain doses now, these things do transfer to, to athletic performance. We know that. There's research out there that shows that. And if you go full Bosch, if you do do that, and you and I think this is not just France, Bosch in particular. It's any system out there. If you get caught too far on one side of the system, I think you're missing out on a lot of other important attributes that are out there. I think it's always it's good to be balanced in, in, in your principles and your methodology and things that you're doing. And I think you can sprinkle in some of these exercises here and there, but you just got to be careful because if you're, t- if you're putting a lot of these things into your gym room activities – you have to remove something else out and you're removing things out. And with, with the, the Bosch stuff inside the gym, for me, it's like, how do you know that it transfers hundred percent? How do you know? It's very hard to, to say, yes, this transferred to the field because it's really hard to measure transfer on the field. Whereas just basic things in the, in the weight room, we can just measure. We know that if we improve RSI, we're going to have a little bit more stiffness on the field. You know, if we improve, Rate of force development, hopefully that's going to transfer in the field. You know, you can measure these things and you can try and hopefully we're getting this transfer, whereas the other way around, I'm not sure, is hard to measure. And I think having general strength is still really, really important. I still think, you know, athletes need to have good tissue quality, which you can build in the weight room. I think athletes need to be strong. They need to be able to run through. This is in, in my context of like rugby and rugby league and things like that. They need to be able to be strong. And then we can use those field activities before what I talked about to, to, to tie in a lot of those coordinated factors. And then you can still, you can still work on some, some coordination and stuff in the weight room anyway because you have all these other diff, different methods you can play around with. Yeah, it makes me think about, you know, just had Kieran, Nick DeMarco on talking about the different, um, the need-based buckets. And 
Mm-hmm. What does an athlete really need? Do they need mass? Do they need body composition? Do they need speed? Do they yeah. need strength? And then I think about like the bonder check pyramid and you have the competitive exercise, the SD, the mm-hmm. SPE and the general. And it's almost like, am I going to take, if an athlete needs those that, like you said, you're going to take, if you're going to put in some really like something that's really coordinative and trying to be specific in the weight room, you're going to take away from probably like the G, the general exercise bucket. But what yeah. if an athlete needs more general exercises? And yeah, so you and just have to be really particular about why and, and what you're giving up. Like you said, what, what are you not doing now? Exactly right. And just because it's general doesn't mean it doesn't transfer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially, with, you know, it definitely transfers. Um, and then it also just breaks up the monotony of just specific training, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really important as well. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's important to be balanced in everything. I'd like to get to transition a little bit. You know, we're talking about some of the more unique elements of things in the weight room from time to time or things that people might follow. But one of the things I wanted to ask you based off of a lot of um, you know, people you've learned under is where do you stand on the, the one by 20 lifting spectrum? I know you utilize other methods, but where, where's yeah. your balance point in that system of weightlifting and training? I've only used it sparingly with some younger athletes and it definitely worked, but obviously my, um, my buddy, uh, Jeff and, and, and Jay both always talk about it. I know they're influenced by, um, Dr. Yeasis and that they reckon, um, I know they had some really, really good results with it. My friend, uh, Jake Jensen as well, he's talked about using it. So I, I'm sure it works because a lot of coaches that I highly respect use it. And, but to me, I've never really specifically used it. You could probably, you could probably put it early on in a, in a preseason period, but for me, it's just whether or not my athletes would buy into it at the appropriate time. And so when I was working in rugby league, I'm not sure if my athletes would have bought into a one by 20 method at the start. So, you know, for me, a big part of it is also, you know, is it, not, is it the perfect program, but it, or is it, am I going to get buy into the program? So I think with the appropriate athlete and the appropriate time, it, it'd probably be really beneficial, but I don't have a huge amount of experience with it, to be honest. But my GPE phase is probably trying to tick off those same qualities that is that what they talk about in the one by 20 method, if, if you know what I mean. I'm looking to do enhanced tissue quality, target different ranges of motion, different joint positions in a more of a low stimulus fashion, trying to get a good foundation of strength without burning the athletes out early preseason. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I was just curious because I guess maybe by association, I figured that that was something that you utilized quite a bit. Um, yeah, based no. Based off of being close to those Yeah, I, I, ha- I haven't had a great amount of experience in it, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, as I said, those guys are gun coaches and, and they, they like it. So I'm sure it works really well. Got it. So in terms of just strength, though, in general, kind of looking at that train of things, I know you've posted some elements that I guess we could call alternative strength methods, but I'm, I'm interested in chatting about them. And that I know one, t- you sent me this video, I think on social media, but it was like doing a oscillatory uh, hop up and down off of a plate in a lunge position with the front foot. Yeah. And so tell yeah. me about oscillatory work has been really, I mean, it's been fascinating to me for a long time, but I always enjoy hearing how people utilize it and implement it in their training. So tell me a little bit about your experience with oscillating work. Start off with like 85, 90% of my, my, my training is proven and, and, and I guess methods that I know that are big rocks, but I always like to experiment with that final 10%. And I've been playing around with some of these movements after watching Carl Dietz stuff. And that one there is just something that I come up with. And I, I really, really 
I played around with it, and then I started programming it for my um my online clients, and the feedback was really really good. We did it at the start of a session, and they said they felt their nervous system felt much more, um, I guess, lit up. They were ready to go, and they felt that their their training after that doing those movements really really improved. In regards to the, the os- oscillating mo- movements, is I like to use them during the peaking phase because it kind of during those peaking phases, I want to reduce the amount of heavy loads that we're, we're kind of working with anyway. And I'm working on more, I guess, qualities such as speed, relaxation, rate of force development. And you want to give them, as you're leading up to the competition period, you want to kind of decrease stress a little bit in the, the amount of eccentric stress that you're doing. So I always find that guys rebound in strength really, really highly there. I'm not sure if it's because it's a deload in the max strength that you, you, you've given them or it's because – it could that could be a major part of it to be honest, but you know I think this relaxation and the ability to to contract and 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 relax is a really important thing that athletes can take away. So yeah, that one I sent through to you, I do that. I also like it because it allows you to focus on a small different smaller ranges of motion. So if you're doing that with like say even with your upper body, you can focus on like just to oscillate in two to three inches at the bottom of a, say, a fly movement or like a dumbbell press, and you, you kind of strengthen those areas around the shoulder. And I can do that, say, with like a chest-supported row, just the, the final moments. That can carry over to a, a, a grapple or a clinch position. I can do it in a mid-squat position or a mid-split squat position, and that's kind of where the region of force production occurs in a lot of sports, and it's like kind of like your power position. So... Yeah, I quite I quite like it. Uh, I, I might only use it for two, three weeks, three weeks of uh, of, of the phase, but it's, it's it's just a small part of my whole probably holistic approach to training. But um, to be honest with you, Joe, I'll probably use them more with my fighters at the moment because those speeds and contractions are more specific to the what occurring in a sport. And with fighters, so I'm working with a lot of combat athletes at the moment, a lot of more more Thai and kickboxers more to athletes and kickboxing athletes. When they're going into training camp, the training load's so, so high that I want to decrease that eccentric stress and that, those heavy loads. So I started using these um, oscillating movements a little bit more and it kind of freshens them up and I'm still maintaining some strength and I, I really like it, to be honest. Yeah, and all the guys that have used it really, really like it as well. And I've been utilizing those um, reflexive triometrics a lot more as well with my fighters. I, I don't know if you've seen those ones. Yeah, I'd like to get yeah. into that. Uh, before I do, actually, I, I have a couple of questions on the oscillatory yeah. work and I'll save the trimetrics because that's something I've seen and I haven't used that at all. So I'm curious to ask mm-hmm. you your experience uh, with that. But so the oscillatory, so you're saying that you like it for either the warm up or you'll use it in peaking. Okay. Okay. So the warm up stuff, that drill that I sent you, I just used it in the warm up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That one I sent you when you're hopping on and off. And that was more of a, I did that in the warm up. But I've used the, the, the from cows stuff. I've used the oscillating movements and the time sets because when you have a lack of resources with athletes, like those time sets work really, really well. But I use them more for accessory movements, to be honest, Joel. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Put accessories at the end. Hey. Interesting. So like, um, so like a time set, like like a timed oscillator. So you have ten seconds to do oscillatory bench press or something like that instead of. I mean, it's hard uh, to do reps on that to say you do 10 reps of oscillating because to count and go as fast as you can is not an easy thing. Um, no, no, no. For the, for, the, for the time sets, I just do, I'd probably do full range of motion. Oh, really? That's, okay. that's, a, that's, a, that's a different movement. 
So if you don't, if you're a coach and you have lack of resources and you have no velocity based, if you don't have a gym aware, you don't have a, a push band or something like that, you can say to an athlete, hey, we're going to work this split squat as many reps as possible in seven seconds, roughly where the, you know, you create an ATP system is dominant. And you can go up, up and down as fast as possible in that seven seconds. And then you count as many reps as you can do with that weight and that's your progression. So I've used that in team sport scenarios where you've got time sets one day, you might have oscillating movements on another day. And then that's as my accessory movements, but then my strength movement will be more um, of a, probably like a, a banded movement. So like, or for my main, main exercises, let's say if I was using the trap bar, for example, I might use a low handle trap bar GPE phase, GPP phase, then as we go into that's more of a strength phase, I'd do a high handle trap bar. And then when we're going into, say, the peaking phase, I'll do a trap bar, banded trap bar. Or I might do a banded squat. And then I'll do my oscillating movements and, and my time sets as my accessories around that, while still keeping some big rocks in my program so that I don't lose any of the strength that, that we've kind of gained throughout the period. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. So when you say accessories, does that mean it's accessory lifts like instead of barbell bench dumbbell i mean it's a really simple rudimentary example but oh like, sorry 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 you know I get when i say accessories i mean i guess more of the assistant exercises if you call them assistant sure yeah. so, so you like, go like heavy yeah. hex bar deadlift with band or, or moderate with band so it's speed yeah just yeah that'd be like a normal lifting but you're still trying to go for speed but i'm still keeping that strength there and then for my my assistant exercises perhaps i'm doing split squats oscillating perhaps i'm doing split squats time sets got it does that make sense yeah yeah so, yeah 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 so i'm kind of like i'm still keeping because I, I i like more a vertical integration type method with my athletes rather than a block method so i like to focus on a couple of um qualities while still keeping a thread on all different qualities because for me that's a more robust method than doing a block method because if an athlete gets hurt or something in sport you've been doing a block type method you can lose a lot of your qualities really quickly. Whereas if you look at the more of the agile periodization type thing that mm -hmm. Miladin Jovanovic talks about, if an athlete gets injured, you're not going to lose as many qualities because you still tick them off along the way, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I you're, like look, you're, looking, you're looking more at worst case, case scenarios. It's more, it's more agile. <laughs> I, yeah, I like that. I like, um, actually, I haven't heard anyone mention that in a while, but the idea of starting with a bigger lift that is probably a little slower, relatively speaking, and then dropping down into the oscillatories, I've always found that to be tremendously effective. I've even used it in probably, I guess you call it earlier training phases where we're, there's a heavier squat or something. And then you're still kind of, you're, you're almost like um, not erasing, but you're almost writing over the neural pattern of that slow squat with a, with yes, a contract, yes. relax, contract, relax, contract, relax, and yes, always yes. putting that as a priority. And, and it's important to just point out as well, Joel, it depends on, on the type of athlete you're working with. Because if you're working with a rugby athlete, you're going to have to keep a lot of those strength things in there, okay? But if you're working with, uh, say, what's another type of athlete? A hockey player or something where running in, you don't have to run into brick walls and you, you might be able to play around more of these oscillating type movements because max strength is not as quite as important. So it probably depends on the sport. So what I was talking about before was probably more to do with the population that I've worked with in regards to how I explained to the fighters and, and, and the rugby players in, in the past. Because You're talking about field always, hockey there, right? Not ice hockey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Field hockey. Yeah. Cause that's, oh, yeah, hockey, people listening, that's, that's, people listening that's in the brutal. United States will say, will say, what is this guy talking about? Cause I, I made them. No, no. 
Yeah, Nikolai Morris uh, from New Zealand corrected me on that too. I thought she worked with like female ice hockey players. What's going on here? Hey, Joel, I didn't see snow till I was uh, 21 years old, mate. So, um, (laughs) our winter is 10 degrees, 10 degrees uh, Celsius at at the lowest, you know what I mean? So, yeah, no ice sports over here, mate. Yeah, yeah. I've grown (laughs) to learn that that is the case. So, yeah, yeah, I I like that. I was going to ask you, or say just just to comment too. I like I like the idea of one day being a, a full range like time sets. And actually, I'll say this too: as I, I think that I think that velocity based training is great, but I think it's almost like we've sometimes when we have so much nice things, we almost forget about the thing that honestly I think is either the same or nicer. Which I would prefer if I had to pick one or the other. I actually would take a time set because mm-hmm. I like that there's rhythm and there's contraction and relaxation. And I mean, again, I like tendos. I like that stuff. I, I think it's, it's, I've used them in my own um, athletic performance training and the athletes I've worked with quite a bit. And I think it's really helpful, but I, I also just really think time sets are great. And I haven't heard anyone talk about them in a while. And it was the great uh, Tadeusz Starzynski, the Polish jumps coach with the, the time squat sets in the eighties. That was originally what got me onto it. Yeah. So it's good to hear it. Again. Well, that's because everyone's always trying to chase numbers and they see these power production the power output on a, on a um, gym aware and I get excited by it. And then people always get, if you can measure it, it means that, you know, oh, look, I've improved this relaxation coordination and these things that we're talking about, they're very, very hard to measure. But I've, I've experimented with them, my athletes like, and when you do them, you feel, you actually feel really, really good. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the issue. When uh, people get worried when they can't actually measure something all the time, and then they worry about whether or not transfers, but, that's the problem with these things. It's really, really hard to assess transfer, Joel, because with so many moving parts that all you're trying to do is just get these little adaptations everywhere and you're hoping that they come together and create a bigger adaptation that's going to improve performance. So a lot of the time people will say, oh, show me the evidence of this and that. Well, it's, you can't always show evidence because for a start, a lot of the studies that are being taken places, it's just university students anyway. Mm-hmm. You know? So, of course, of course, they're going to get better at doing that. But a lot of times, the, the, the population that you work with, there is no research on them doing the specific training methods that you do. So quite often, you just got to talk to um, other coaches and see what's worked with them, trial and error with your own own things, speak to your athletes. How does it feel? Well, I'll give you an example. Like I was doing some oscillating movements with one of my fighters and his, his pad holder, the guy that holds his pads, messaged me and said, what have you been doing? Like, literally, he's bruised my leg through the pads. His, his leg kicks are so hard. Do you know what I mean? So that, that's good feed, feedback for me. It might not be evidence-based, but I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, those are the things that you work <laughs> with, though. Like those, it's, And I, I find that I, I have to do that sometimes. I have like an Evernote file like of those types of situations. That's like, okay, here's what I was doing. And it's a complex situation. You kind of try to put together that thing that you feel like really worked effectively there. And I think most of us have these big rocks in the training. We all do similar things. But, you know, I, I like to play around with that extra 10%. Yeah. Um, because it, it makes training more fun as well. And the other thing is just with big heavy lifting in general. I only lift two days a week now, Joel, because I'm, I'm 38 as well with my own training. And you know what's really surprised me? I only lift two days a week, probably 40 minutes. What surprised me is that my strength hasn't really gone down. And I've been doing that for five, six years. It hasn't gone up, mind you, but the strength in the weight room hasn't gone down. And I think 
people don't realize that, that you can maintain this strength relatively easy just by doing other things as well. Does that, does that make sense? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. for, for yeah. me particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm the prototypical like elastic athlete that I need, if I don't get maximal contractions from sprinting or jumping or some sort of plyometric exercise, and usually in, in the emotional state too, where I'm racing somebody or competing in some way, shape or form, my lifts will not be the best they can be. Um, yeah. and, and I have to have that and all my best strength to body weights, um, that I've had have actually been when I was doing more like yeah team sport or plyos or track competitions. And then when I actually yeah. trained explicitly for powerlifting using powerlifting programs, I did set lift PRs, but I also gained like 15 pounds to do it. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, it just wasn't my jam. Yeah. And look, I think plyometrics are so under undervalued and um, not even from a um, power production point of view, just for making that, that from the knee down, really from the knee down, knee ankle complex down, really resilient and robust. And, you know, I think Hank Cranehoff always says, you know, was it jumping for cats, not, not for cows, but I always have a good theme of a lot of extensive jumps and extensive plies in my mm-hmm. program in that initial phase. I think it's so beneficial just to get that um, resilience or robustness around those, those areas and then try and layer um, a little bit more intensity on those plyometrics as you go through, unless you've got a really, really, really heavy athlete. Yeah. And sometimes you've got, you've got to be careful. I was having that but, um, exact conversation with uh, mm. sorry, a, a coach just yesterday. No. I was watching... Um, I was watching football linemen do like a single leg hopping bounding drill. And I was, and I, I've been thinking about this before, but I was, I was talking to the coach about the idea of like, everyone can use the basics, like the rudimentary, low extensive plyos, yeah. low amplitude. You're not going very yeah. far because all those operate on the principle of general energy return. And once you get an athlete who's too big or heavy or not suited for plyos, they're making that bound bigger is not going to work in the same mechanisms as an elastic athlete. They're going to push yeah. too much. They're going to use their all. It's going to be all external rotation and calf and not like the foot coming up. And so the thought of mine is like everyone should do basic extensive or rudiment based stuff. But based off of your uh, elastic ability determines how far you should take all that stuff. Uh, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Because you can break some athletes doing that stuff if you go into intense for sure. But um, as we were talking about before, just you're talking about the reflexive, reflexive trimetrics. And I've been playing around with these probably for the last four or five months. Yeah. Can you explain what um, they are too real quick as well, just before you get too far into it? Because I'd like to hear as well, uh, again, what that is. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a method I see from Cal Dietz users. And you basically, you hook up like a, a belt around your waist and you have a, a bunch of bands that pull, pull, are pulling you down into the ground. So it's easy just to set up in the pegs, like pegs at the bottom. And these, these bands are trying to pull you into the floor. And then you can have like a bar in front of you that you're holding and you're kind of doing these um, these movements up and down as fast as possible. I use squat, I use split squat, and I use that seven to ten seconds duration. And they're going up and down as quickly as possible. And the bands are so heavy up that you're probably not getting right at the top. But for me, that's kind of like plyometrics for your hips, because in most plyometric jumps, you, you're mainly targeting your, your knee and your ankle complex probably more, whereas your hips aren't getting as much work. And then by doing these reflexive trimetrics, um, you're keeping your foot flat on the ground and you're coming up and down and you're really, really hitting that hip region. And for me, I was like, for my combat athletes who are, you know, they're trying to produce power in the kicking 
and the um, punching, a lot of it stems from the ground up, but also from your hips. And I was like, well, if they're always just doing plyometrics, they're, they're just targeting more that that lower limb area, whereas now I can target that that hip region a bit more. And I think that's helped for their power production and their striking ability. So that's why I've been trying utilizing it and playing around with them lately and doing them sometimes early in the, in the training. Or oh, sorry, I do them before I do my heavy lifts. And um, the feedback from them has been really, really good. And it's actually really tough. Like you should tr- give it a crack one day and try it out. It's, it's, it's crazy the burn you get doing it. And you feel, you feel pretty cool afterwards. And that's, that's part of the oscillatory work that you mentioned the, the, the mat holder was saying. Yeah, maybe I'm ch- I changed a little bit, but like I, I mainly, I probably go more than two, two to three inches, four inches. I'm, I'm working that, I'm working in that region with my fighters kind of where the force production is, is in that mid, that stance that they're coming, they're punching from and kicking from. So that's the more of the region I'm working because it's a bit more specific, but I'm sure you can go for a greater range of motion doing that as well. After, you have to play around with it, but yeah. I like it. I like the concept because you get a, a high, a high amount of density within the set as well. Like the amount of density that you're getting, the band's pulling you down. You're coming up as fast as possible. You might get twenty something reps in, in in seven seconds. You know. I think that's that's the one thing too. Um, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes for when listening. Head to justlifesports.com and check the show notes so that you can actually see these movements um, being done. But mm-hmm. uh, one of the and things. Ca- ca- Cal's got a um, big, big series on, on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Right on. I'll, I'll try to make sure I get that in there. But I, the thing I like about the oscillatories and I mean, I've, I've had um, Sheldon Dunlap came on and talked about how effective the oscillatory was putting in that middle phase in the triphasic too. And the thing I, I think about is like, yes, I mean, we talk about max and 10 in the weight room a lot, but I feel like it's very, um, it, it's very, it's almost more, what's the, like, like a, like a fast and elastic athlete can really embody those isometric or oscillatory reps, those, those, those mm-hmm. quick up and down to them, that, that maximal is probably feels more like a competition than maybe trying to get a wattage, like high output. I mean, I, I like both of them. I think athletes really yeah. can do well with both, but I feel like mm-hmm. it's, it's less, um, it's also, maybe I'll put it this way. It's less, I feel like it's less, less costly on your nervous system to do more rounds yeah. of the quick oscillatory maximal work than to do a bunch of max, um, put a, a bar speed monitor and do like wattage based outputs on the the heavier bars i think you can do a lot more yeah. of the aussie stuff and a little yeah. bit less of that the heavy traditional stuff I've, i think a lot of time it depends on your training phase where you're at and the type of athlete you're doing because you still need to move heavy loads quickly especially if you have like say a rugby player you may be american uh, nfl player type mm-hmm. thing who's in the um sorry i don't know the terminology here properly but you know these guys have to be able to um, move higher loads quickly mm-hmm. so that, that that stuff needs to be in your program but perhaps you don't need to do that you're just moving your body weight on the field that's what your sport entails not so much moving a heavy load this is where these things can really come into can be really beneficial and for me like if i'm working with these populations i want to try and get a little bit of everything and it depends on the training phase what we're going to do so I, you know i don't favor one over the other i like both and as I said before, Joel, I just want to reiterate that 85, 90% of my stuff is just the, the big rocks and then I play around with the rest. <laughs> yeah. So this, even for the yeah. fighters where they aren't doing as much like uh, uh, rugby would do more weightlifting, I'm, I'm sure I would imagine. But like as a proportion, your fighters are doing more oscillatory than your rugby players? Probably, yes. Okay. Pro- oh, probably. Uh, yeah. Yes, because I'll tell you why. Because 
in, with my rugby players, you, you, you've got a competition pe- period. You've got a preseason. There's only one preseason per year. Whereas a fighter might have three, four fights a year. So they're going to have three or four peaking phases a year. So because they're doing that, you're recycling through the phases a lot quicker. Because in, in, in a rugby season or something like that, it, it, it is, the um, competition period is such a long, long time that you can't play around with that stuff as much. Whereas with fighting, you might be peaking three, four, five times a year, depending on how many times they fight. So you're going to get that in a lot more, if that makes sense. Yeah, cool. Well, hey, last question I have for you is yeah. I've seen you doing some different foot training exercises, lower leg type training. So I'll ask you, what are some core uh, foot and lower leg type training movements outside of the extensive plyos um, yeah. that you utilize in your programming? Well, I used to follow the gate guys and Chris Corfus, uh, and I used to do all those ankle shuff, uh, shuffle drills and the tripod foot drills and things like that. I think been discussed in this podcast before. But I'm going to be honest with you, Joel. I thought I kind of knew what I was talking about. <laughs> when, when I've listened to guys like Gary Ward and, and David Gray, and I realized I don't really have much of a clue. Yeah. <laughs> in regards to the foot, and it's something that I need to delve deeper. But one thing, I, uh, I've just finished um, Alex Effer's Evolve Mentorship, and he, he actually talked a lot about the foot presentations, which I found really, really interesting. And he talked about foot presentations. You could either be in a uh, heel strike foot, you could have a, uh, a mid-stance foot, you could have a tie-off foot. And a lot of that depended on kind of how your ex- actual skeleton uh, presented. And I think, you know, Angus probably talked about all this and the Bill Hartman stuff. It's like wherever you have a wide infrasternal angle, narrow infrasternal angle, and all these types of things. So I think it's a lot of foot stuff will depend on how your hips move. So, you know, we always, they will talk about this triplanar, should have triplanar ranges of motion. I think that's what they talk about. So I'm still getting my head around all this type of stuff, but I think it's important that you have internal external rotation of your hips. Uh, and you probably need to have some supination and pronation of your foot. So rather before I was throwing a lot of a bomb of a lot of exercise and hoping something that was just going to stick, throwing a lot of bunch of exercise at the wall. Now I'm trying to be a little bit more, I guess, of a sniper with these exercises, and I'll probably address the hip first. And I've been David Gray's been a massive influence on, on some of the stuff that I do. So I've been doing a lot of uh, his lower body basic movements with my athletes. So a lot of those um, those scissor drills, um, those. 99 knee roll drills where you have your foot on the in contact with the wall so you kind of get that sensory motor feeling and then i like to do all the hops on top of that and then probably i'm doing a lot of soleus work some calf work some tib anterior work on top of that and then a lot of unilateral exercises as my accessories so the foot's still getting some some type of um training there but it's something made the when you go into it, it's, it's such a complex topic and it's something that I kind of probably thought I knew and it's something I need to go in a bit deeper so I have a better understanding. But yeah, they're the things I look at, mate, at the moment. So does that make sense? Yeah, I, w- I was having almost a little bit of chuckle to myself in the sense of there was a moment <laughs> a few years ago when I thought I really had the foot figured out. And then I started learning. It's like you, 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 you're in your bubble and then you exposed to the next bubble out, which that next bubble out was the impact of the hips and everything coming down from the upstream onto the foot, which is funny. Cause now I'm just yeah. like, man, like how did I not even be thinking about that? But it's like, wow, that that's a huge element of it all. And I, David Gray, the first yeah. time he was on the podcast was talking about like the hips impacting your ability to pronate. 
the ribs, even the jaw or whatever, which I haven't gotten, yes, I haven't gotten yes. that far yet. <laughs> the jaw, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's to me, nature is so complex. And I mean, yes, there's some simple things I think can be really helpful, but at the end of the day too, that when we get integrated and there's different cases, it's, it can, there's a lot of things like I, I definitely, um, I can definitely see it. So I like the, I like that the, like Alex, I first talk about the, the different presentation styles and people more likely to strike on one, um, versus the other. I think it's a really interesting concept. Yes. Yeah, all very, very interesting stuff. And I, I, as you said, as I'm delving deeper for a lot of the things these guys are talking about, the, the influence of the pelvis in the forex is just so important. And um, that's kind of where I've been researching and studying this year, going to a lot of these concepts, because honestly, when they first come out of these concepts, I think a lot of it's based off PRI principles and things like that that's highly influenced. But when they were talking about it, I didn't really have an understanding of what they were talking about. So I've tried to delve a little bit deeper into these into these principles and I've started sprinkling these things into my, my training and even with my own, my own training Joel, because I'm banged up 38 year old that tries to do Muay Thai and kickboxing most days of the week. And a lot of these like forex pelvis type things have really made me feel like I can go a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That makes me feel like, it's, you know, it makes you feel good a lot of the time. So it's just about finding that right balance and, I've been using a lot of these things more in my warm-up rather than just doing basic mobility things. Basic mobility, I'm starting to do a lot more breathing, um, taking the hips through different planes of motion, through the sagittal plane, the, the frontal plane, you know, doing some basic some drills with the foot where you might put more force through the heel, you might play around, you might put more force through the midfoot, and just seeing what types of muscles work and how it, how it changes, just having a bit more, better of understanding of where my kind of center of mass sits. It's something that I'm still experimenting with, but I think it's something that I want to uh, continue to go down the rabbit hole. So I think it's really important because the most important thing for my athletes is that they are playing the sport that they're doing. They're injury-free, um, and they can express themselves on the field. And if they have confidence in their body and they move well and have these movement options, and these movement options not, aren't always because of whether or not they know the, the, the actual um, movements because – they can't get into this, in and out of these positions. So I think this is where that, those, that training, these principles can come into place so you can really have a big uh, influence on your athletes. That makes sense. I kind of went around about there. But. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say I, as we get older, it's definitely brings it more into the clear and present importance to work on these things ourselves so our athletes can then benefit uh, from utilizing them too because I, I, I would agree that it, it definitely, um, it's definitely really impactful. So, but actually that's, uh, that's the end of the questions I had for today, Graham. It was great having you on. It was enjoyable for me, especially to get into a lot of like the, uh, the way that you run the strength outside of just the big rocks and talking uh, different game speed concepts. Yeah. So I appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. That wraps up another show. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you enjoyed it, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. It would really help us out. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.